So that phrase, that last verse in this section, for our God is a consuming fire. Now, it's important for us to recognize that this is not describing the actions of God. It's describing the character of God. It's not talking about what God does. It's talking about what God is. God is a consuming fire. Now, this is kind of a scary thing to think about, isn't it? That the, the Scripture would say that God is a consuming fire. Notice also, it didn't say that God was a consuming fire. This isn't talking about the God of the Old Testament. This is talking about the very character of God, the God who doesn't change. Now, the, the writer of Hebrews is quoting Deuteronomy chapter 4. Let me read to you the context of the quote. He, that Moses had written in Deuteronomy chapter 4, take, speaking to God's people, Take heed to yourselves, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God which He made with you, and make yourselves a carved image in the form of anything that, uh, which the Lord your God has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Now understand what's going on here. When, when Moses says this in Deuteronomy 4, God's people, having wandered in the wilderness, having walked around the desert for 40 years because they didn't have enough faith to actually go into the land that God had promised them, finally the generation that didn't believe dies off, and Moses is about to send the generation that did believe into the promised land. And he's saying, listen, you're going to the place where God's promised you, but here's the deal, don't forget the God who saved you. And this is a temptation for all of us. This is this, this temptation for all of us, whether we profess faith or don't profess faith, the temptation for us is to do what, what God says don't do here, what Moses says don't do here. It is to carve an image for ourselves to worship. And we might not do it with our hands. We might be a bit too sophisticated to carve an image with our hands and bow down to it. We definitely carve an image with our mind. We decide what God is like or what should be exalted to the place of God in our lives. We do that. And so what God is saying to his people is, listen, know that this is a temptation and don't go that direction. Don't make either with your hands or with your mind a graven image because God's a consuming fire. He's a jealous God. Now some of you who are maybe more clever and know the scripture, you might be thinking, wait a second, wait a second, contradiction. Because the Bible says that God is love and the Bible also says that love's not jealous. Aha, contradiction. But actually, this is what it's talking about. When the Bible says that love's not jealous, it means love doesn't envy. In other words, love doesn't want something that doesn't belong to it. But jealousy, when the Bible speaks of this jealousy that God has, it's the right kind of jealousy. It's a jealousy that I should have if some guy's chatting up my wife and she's responding to it. I should be jealous. I should want to intervene in that situation. It's appropriately for me to do so. It's not love if I don't do so. And God, as the creator, the Bible has this assumption. God has made all, all belongs to him, all was made good. He has good intent for all. And so therefore he says, listen, if you see God in other way than I've revealed myself to be, guess what? You're worshiping a false God. You're being chatted up by an idol of your own making. And I'm going I'm to intervene in that situation. I'm a consuming fire. God's this God of passion, a God who cares and deeply loves His people, those He's made and redeemed. God's not a casual God. God's not just like some idea floated in space. God's not Mr. Spock. 
He's just, he doesn't sit in, in heaven going, interesting, I've made this, interesting. Cerebral and detached, God is a consuming fire. He loves those He's made. He knows He's made those good, that He's made, He's made them good, and He wants good for them. So when the Bible says God's a consuming fire, the, the, the author of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews, wants us to remember this is the character of God. This is what God is like. And so what he's doing in this section is he's kind of summing up all the things he said before in the book of Hebrews, and he's using this, this metaphor, these two metaphors of these two mountains. And he's saying, look, here's two ways that you can approach this God who's a consuming fire. Now, remember the context of the book of Hebrews. These are Hebrew Christians that, because they're being persecuted, because it's difficult for them to follow Jesus, because they are being persecuted. Family members are rejecting them, and their jobs are at threat, and sometimes even their lives are in peril. Because they're being persecuted, what's happening is they're tempted to go back to Judaism, put themselves back under a form of Old Testament law. And it's interesting because in doing so, they're actually forgetting what that's actually like. And we do the same thing. We, we get this idea that we, we're not sure we want to kind of relate to a God on His terms. We, we want a bit more control than that. So we think, okay, God has to have some say so. So, all right, God, you tell me your, what you want. Okay, you want me to be good? Okay, I'll be good. I, I think I'm good enough. I'll prove that I'm good enough. And we try to relate to God that way as opposed to relate to God in His terms. And so what, what the author does, what the writer does, is he begins the section by saying, okay, let's remember what it was like. Let's talk about the mountain that you don't come to God through. And he reminds them about the experience of the Old Testament believers when they first tried to approach God or when they were first called to approach God. So he says to them in verse 18, <coughs> you have not come to the mountain that may be touched, that burned with fire, and to blackness and dark, darkness and tempest. Man, scary, isn't it? Now, what he's referring to in these verses, basically from verses 18 all the way down to 21, he's actually referring to a section, you can read it later, Exodus chapter 19 and 20. It's the time when God's going to give the Ten Commandments to the people. This is the covenant. Here's the law. Here's the expression of God's character through the obedience of His people. That's what the Ten Commandments are about. And so when he's going to give this Ten Commandments, this, this law, he basically does it in a way that is, he's wanting to reveal something to these people. He's wanting them to see something. Interesting, he even says in verse 19 that during this time there was, God was speaking. It was like the sound of a trumpet, loud and intimidating. And it says, it says it was so intimidating, it says that, so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. In other words, this was such a, a scary, a terrifying scene that even though God's speaking truth to them, they're like, we can't hear it. We don't want to hear this. It's too scary. In fact, listen to this. Exodus chapter 20. It says, Now all the people witnessing, uh, witnessed the thunderings, the lightning flashes, the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking. And when they saw it, they trembled and stood afar off. They didn't go near God. They stood afar off. Then they said to Moses, listen, you speak to us, we will hear, but let not God speak to, with us, lest we die. Oh. Now, now, you have to understand something, okay? This, is, this, is, this doesn't, let's be honest, this doesn't sit well with our modern sensibilities, does it? The idea of a God who's loving and compassionate and kind, we like. The idea, idea of a God who's so holy, 
It scares the pants off of people who try to approach them on their own merit. We don't like. But I want you to think about this for a second, okay? Think about it this way. Think about this as if, okay, you in this room, everything you've ever done or thought or felt, every perverse thought, every sadistic dream, every hateful wish, every time you could have done good for somebody and you purposely turned your back on that, every humiliating, shameful moment of your life, imagine that's about to be projected on this screen. But the difference is, you're the only one in this room who's ever done any of those things. Everyone else has always lived perfectly well. Now seriously, it's it's hard for us to think about this way, but think this way. Think about if that was the case, you're going to be completely exposed for who you really are, not who you present yourself to be. We all do that. We all present ourselves to be a certain way. But you're going to be completely exposed to who you are, and not just in front of a bunch of other people who are going to be exposed in the way they are, but someone who, a bunch of other people who don't sin, who haven't ever done anything wrong, how would you feel? I'll tell you what, if we pressed play, you'd be running out the door. You'd be terrified. And so would I. None of us want to be exposed this way. Now, this is kind of what's happening here. What God's really wanting to do is He's wanting to give His Ten Commandments, and and the Ten Commandments have a certain purpose. The law of God has a certain purpose. Listen, it's meant not for intimacy, but it's meant to produce fear. The law of God was meant for people to realize this is who you are. We don't want to see ourselves as we are. We want to see ourselves as better than we are. Now listen, please don't think I'm just saying, see, non-Christians, they're the baddies. Good thing we Christians are the goodies. I'm talking about every single one of us. I don't care if you profess faith or not. You If your heart was exposed here and now, you would know how wretched you actually are. In fact, if we could all see each other's hearts, we'd hate each other. We would never trust each other, would we? See, we know there's a wretchedness in us even if we can't see it, but we only know that because God in His mercy says, let me me just make it really clear to you about what goodness actually is. Let me give you the law. Now, there was a terror these guys experienced because God wanted them to see, and in fact, it was such a terror, they thought, we can't hear this anymore. It's too exposed, and it's too difficult. So what happens? So the author writes in verse 20, for they could not endure what was commanded because God had commanded this, listen, and if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. And this is talking about the mountain where God gave the Ten Commandments because God shows up there. He says, this is a holy place. No one can just approach it. Now, again, let me read to you from Exodus 19. Listen to this. God says to Moses, You shall set bounds for the people all around, saying, Take heed to yourselves that you do not go up the mountain or touch its base. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. Not a hand shall touch him, but he shall be surely stoned or shot with an arrow, whether man or beast, he shall not live. And when the trumpet sounded long, then they shall come near the mountain. Then the Lord said to Moses, get away, go get down and come, then come up, you and Aaron with you, but do not let the priests and the people break through and come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. Now I have to be honest, when I picture this scene, you know what I think of? I think of Wizard of Oz. You guys seen a Wizard of Oz? So Wizard of Oz, what happened in Wizard of Oz, right? You have this wizard, everyone's afraid of the wizard, and you know, you go to the wizard's castle and there's lightning and there's all these things that are described. And guess what? It was all smoke and mirrors. 
And so we think that. We think, hey, oh, come on. Is it really? Come on. It sounds like Wizard of Oz. That's how we think. Do you realize that's why Wizard of Oz was written? It was written to undermine the thought of a holy God. And so this, oh, come on, it's not really like that. Is it really God really like that? Well, listen, you have to understand what's going on here. God is not rejecting his people. He is protecting his people. See, we think of goodness on a sliding scale. And what's interesting about that sliding scale, it is different. It is a sliding scale. It's different all around the world. We'll have different standards of what good is. But here's the thing that's true about every single culture and every single person. Every single culture, every single person has a standard of good that they do not meet. We know there's something good that's gooder or better than we are, but we're afraid to say how good that standard might be. We're afraid to be exposed. So what the writer is doing, he's saying, listen, you're tempted to go back and think, I'll just kind of relate to God by the law. I'll relate to God by do's and don'ts. I'll make the sacrifices. I'll pray the right prayers. I'll go to the right you know, temple. I'll do these things. I'll relate to God that way. And he's going, did you forget why God gave you the law in the first place? It was to show you that that's never going to be good enough. This is not God rejecting. This is God protecting his people from the thing that is so insidious, the thing that God, when he became man, rebuked more than anything. Who did Jesus get most angry at? Who did he yell at? Who did he whip with a cat of nine tails cords? Who? Religious people. People who trusted in their own righteousness, their own goodness. Why? Because he was rejected them? No, because he was protecting them. He's wanting to say, this is your problem, and I want to save you from this self-righteousness. And, and the writer of Hebrews is saying, don't you get it? This is kind of what you have to look forward to. You don't want this, do you? Now, it, it's interesting because we sometimes see this and we think, well, <coughs> come on. I mean, fear really, does, is that really a good way to live, to be afraid? Well, let's talk about fear for a second. Fear can be a good thing, can't it? Do you think it's good to teach, your, to teach small children to be afraid to cross the street without looking? Well, think about the alternative. If they don't cross, if they don't, I've been hit by a car four times. That explains a lot, doesn't it? <laughs> it's because I didn't ever look across the street. And sometimes, even like an idiot, I would ride my little BMX bike when I was about 13, 14 and thought I was cool, trying to dodge between cars. See how daring I am? Smack! <laughs> See how stupid I am? <laughs> and we, so we teach children, you should be afraid of these cars. They can kill you. Why? We don't want them to die. Why would God say, you should be afraid of how good I am? Why? He doesn't want them to die. He wants them to be prepared to come near him, to be able to be close to him. But if they come close to him unprepared, all it's going to bring forth is death. And so the writer's trying to remind them of this reality. that The law was meant to produce fear, not intimacy, and the truth is, it's because God's goodness, or you might say, Scripture might call it God's holiness, consumes all unholiness. Isn't it interesting, too, in both those verses that we read, both Exodus 20 and Exodus 19? And Exodus 20, what do they do? They say, Moses, don't let God speak, but you speak to us. In other words, Moses, be a mediator. And in Exodus 19, same kind of thing. 
God has to say, Moses, don't let these people come up without a mediator. Don't let the, even the priests come up. You go down and make sure they don't get too close. But here's the thing. In verse 21, makes it clear, even Moses was not a good enough mediator. Look what it says in verse 21. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses, even Moses says, I'm exceedingly afraid and trembling. Now the author is, is quoting Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 19. And that is the whole account of the golden calf. How many of you guys know the story of the golden calf? A few of you, half of you. Here's the story in a nutshell. When Moses is on the mountain receiving God's law, not just the Ten Commandments, but all that God would have, uh, have him say as a covenant to his people, Moses is up there doing this. Aaron, his brother's down there, and the people are kind of going, well, what happened to Moses? He's been up there for 40 days, man. He might be dead by now. We're supposed to be worshiping the God who took us, got us out of Egypt. We're in the desert. What do we do next? And so Aaron's kind of panics. Well, the people are in my case, so okay. Everybody, give me your earrings. So they take their earrings and they, they put in this huge pile and they boil them, boil them down and they form this calf, this baby cow out of gold. And they go, there's Yahweh. Worship Yahweh. And so the people worship. And guess how they worship? They danced around it. They got naked. They had an orgy. That's exactly what they did. These are God's covenant people. See, we ain't that bad, are we? <laughs> These are God's covenant people. This is what they did. And so when Moses hears about it, this is when he's exceedingly afraid because he goes, oh, how can I come between? I, I can't stop God from destroying these people. This is, he, he realized the seriousness of, of their sin and his complete inability to actually mediate. How can I reconcile a people that wicked with this God who's so holy? Even Moses couldn't be it. This is the whole point of the writer. The writer is wanting to see, have these guys remember. Don't you remember the terror of trying to relate to God through the law? The terror of trying to approach a holy God based on your own weak attempts at goodness or holiness? Again, God's doing this not out of rejection, but protection. In fact, it's interesting because Moses, you know, poor Moses, man, I feel, I feel sorry for him. He's leading God's people, probably two or three million people, and they're a stubborn old lot, and they're just a difficult to deal with. They're complaining all the time, and they're, they're, they're really thirsty, so he says, God, how am I going to give water to these people? God says, I want you to strike the rock, and water will come out, so he strikes the rock, water comes out, and they all get all the water they need, and okay, that's fine. And then years and years later, towards the very end of their journey, they're complaining again, whoa, we need more water. Come on, Moses. And Moses is like, oh, God, what am I supposed to do with these people? And this time God says, Moses, now this time I want you to speak to the rock. Don't strike it, speak to it. And he said that because the Bible tells us in the New Testament that that rock is a picture of Christ, stricken once, but forever giving living water. And so he says, I want you to speak to the rock. But Moses is so frustrated with the people, what does he do? He yells at the people, you stupid, rebellious people, and he quack, he strikes the rock again. Now, God graciously brings water to those people, but God says to Moses these words, to Moses and Aaron, listen to this. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, and he says, because you did not believe me to hallow me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. Moses, you don't get to go into the promised land with these people. Heavy stuff. See, this is it. God <coughs> wants his people to understand who he is. God wants his people. He wants people to approach him as he is, not as who we want him to be. 
And sometimes we wish God was more angry because people are stupid. And they do stupid things and God just judge those people. God says, that's not how I am. Sometimes we want, we want God to be nicer. God, just be nice to everybody. Oh, let that one slide. He's my friend. Let that one slide. They're my friend. God says, no, I'm not like that. I don't work on a sliding scale. We want God to be other than he is. And God says, no, I've made you to know me as I am. I can give you nothing better than myself. So I won't let you settle for a counterfeit. Not rejection, but protection. Interesting thing about this whole idea of a mediator, this go-between. See, for a mediator to be better than Moses, he'd have to be as holy as God. If you're going to grab the hand of God and grab the hand of mankind and bring these two together, you have to be as holy as God. Who can be as holy as God but God? But also, not only do you have to be as holy as God, you have to be as human as we are. Who can actually grasp our hand? Who can actually say, I know exactly what it's like to be tested in all ways? There's only been one person in history who's ever been as holy as God and as human as us, and his name is Jesus. And this is what the author wants them to get to. That's why he says, notice verse 22, but, he's making a, <coughs> a contrast here, <coughs> but you have come to Mount Zion. Do you notice the contrast? He says in verse 18, you have not come to this kind of scary, horrifying, terrible mountain where you approach God or relate to God through the law. That's terrifying. But you have come to Mount Zion. I want you to notice this, okay? Because listen, the comparison that he's making here, the contrast he's making here is not who they're approaching, but how they approach. He's not saying, oh, see, God's a lot nicer than you thought he was. Don't be afraid. He won't hurt you. No, he, we will be destroyed by him unless there's a mediator. No, he's saying, listen, this is not about... God being different than he's revealed himself to be, this is not who we're approaching, it's about how we approach him. How do we approach this holy, perfectly good God? That's interesting because now he's gonna go from talking about the terror of relating to God through the law to the blessing of relating to God through Jesus. The whole point, the whole point of the book of Hebrews is right here. The blessing of relating to this creator God through Jesus. Look what he says, verse 22. You've not come to you, but you've come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels. That's interesting because he says you've come now not to just this mountain on earth where God shows up, but he's, he's describing in a sense this heavenly realm. You've come right into the heavenly realm, this Mount Zion. Now, Mount Zion was literally one of the mountains that Jerusalem is built upon. It is literally one of the mountains that Jerusalem is built upon. Some even would even say Mount Zion is where Golgotha is, where the Christ was crucified. Don't know if that's the case, but some might say that. But it's one of the hills that Jerusalem's uh, built on, so it's literally that. But it's also figuratively a place, the place where God himself dwells, where God makes his presence known, where God's presence is. So he's talking about this heavenly thing. He even says the heavenly Jerusalem, doesn't he? to an innumerable company of angels. I want you to think about this because this is, this is part of the blessing that we need to understand. The blessing of relating to God through Jesus means this. Listen, it means we're invited to dwell where God dwells. Think about that for a second. 
where God dwells, there's an innumerable amount of angels who all they do night and day is worship. They, and it's not because they have to. They're not robots. God doesn't turn on his angels, click, 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 click. We worship God. We worship God. He doesn't do that. These are free will beings. They, 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 they make choices. In fact, a third of them rebelled and became demons. Now, these are angels who see God as he is and say, God is worthy to be worshipped. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Listen, this is what this means. What it means is when we choose to worship God by faith that way, you know what we're doing? We're joining an innumerable company of angels. When we worship, it's not just a service where we hope the music's good and we hope everybody likes to sing loud. We're talking about we get to go right before the presence of God because of Jesus, our mediator, and sing the way angels sing. In fact, I love this, this description of heaven that we get in the book of Revelation. The description of being in the presence of God in Revelation 21. It says, Behold, the tabernacle or the dwelling place of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Now, Jesus says this is what the kingdom's like. This is what it's like when God rules. When God rules, no more death, sorrow, pain, crying. All those things have gone away. Amazing. Now, as far as the kingdom, you guys who have been around church, you know that we are in that time of where the kingdom is already, but it's also not yet. So I want you to think about this. Because there's an aspect of this that we don't experience yet. We still have pain, we still have some crying, we still have some sorrow. We, we worship with angels, but we don't see the angels. We don't feel the angels. We don't sense the angels. So there's, it's already happening, but it's not yet. But I want you to recognize this, that not only do we worship with angels, but also, listen, we're welcome in this place like beloved children. Now, if I see one of your kids crying, they've been hurt, and one of your little ones crying, I might try to come for you. Are you okay, sweetheart? Is it Okay. But unless I know that child really well, I'm not going to wipe the tears off their eyes. That's just creepy. But if it's my kid hurt, I'm going to do it. It's very intimate, isn't it, touching somebody's face? This is what God offers us. He says, listen, God calls us because Jesus is our mediator. God says, listen, you can now come right into my dwelling place. You can dwell with me. You can worship me as angels do, and you can enjoy me as a, as a child enjoys their father. That's pretty awesome, isn't it? He goes on to say, verse 23, for uh, we've, been, we've, been, we've come to notice the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, notice, to God the judge the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect. Isn't this interesting? To God the judge. Is that a comfort? It is in two ways. Number one, it's a comfort because, listen, when we talk about the goodness of God, that is our hope for justice. I don't think there's any single one of us here whether we believe in God or not that doesn't want justice. All of us want to see wrong stopping. 
You know, the, the, the Old Testament uses this word shalom. You're going to look at this, or you looked at this on Wednesday night, shalom. Or was it next Wednesday we're going to look at this, shalom. And it's this idea of, of shalom means peace to you. And, it, and it's, it's, it's this idea, not just like, hey, feel better. But it's the idea of may things be as they ought to be in your life. That's the shalom. And all of us long for that shalom. We long for things to be as they ought to be. But it's tricky. Sometimes we don't even know how they ought to be. But the great revelation of Scripture, the great revelation we have of God become man is not just an idea put on paper, but a person who comes and says, listen, I'm going to do all the things that you would expect God to do to show you that God is real, that I am real as the creator God, and I'm going to show you what I say is good and what my kingdom is, and I'm going to bring this to pass. Shalom will be a reality. You're going to experience this because God is judge. That's one thing it means. The other thing it means is this. If God's the judge and he judges you innocent, no one else can judge you guilty. <laughs> Think about that. Ever been in a situation where you had a relationship and someone in that relationship treated you a bit bad and <laughs> you reconciled with that person and you moved on to the relationship, but a friend of yours can't handle how that person treated you bad. And so they still treat that person like you did before you're reconciled. Do you know what I'm talking about? Now, we can get into relationships, and sometimes that's a good thing, and, but we won't get into that today. But just, you know what I'm talking about, that dynamic, that dynamic where, where you're reconciled with somebody, but they won't be reconciled with that person because they think, no, they treated you so bad. This is kind of the way it works with us and God. God forgives us, and you walk through this, but sometimes we look at people and go, God forgave you? I don't know if I can forgive you. You're an idiot. But God's the judge. In fact, he says that we've been called to, we've come to, through Jesus, we've come to the spirit of just men made perfect. That word for just could be translated justified. You know what justified means? Rendered innocent. How does God do that? Listen, let me read you some scriptures. I'm going to read from the, <coughs> the New Living Standard. <coughs> I'm sorry, not <coughs> The New Living Translation. Let me read to you these, these verses. Check this out. This is from the book of Romans. For everyone has sinned, and we all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God, in his grace, freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Jesus Christ when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. For he presented Jesus as a sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. This sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who, sins, uh, who sinned in times past. For he was looking ahead and including them in what he would do in this present time. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness, for he himself is fair and just, and he makes sinners right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. It's pretty clear, isn't it? Now, you might, not under, you might not believe this, but I hope you understand it. I hope you understand that the message of Christianity is this, that it's, it's not that it's okay for us that we can get away with all our injustices. It's that the fact that no matter how hard we try, we commit injustices, and therefore we need a mediator. We need a Savior who can pay for our sins 
and forgive us. Now, someone uh, says, I've heard people say, well, lucky for God, there was a third party who would take that punishment. But that's not what the Scripture teaches. The Scripture doesn't teach Jesus as a third party. The Scripture teaches that Jesus is God himself. So people say, why doesn't God just forgive? Well, he does just forgive, but all forgiveness requires the absorption of the pain inflicted by the, by the sin. All forgiveness does that. So I, had a, I was apologizing to, uh, to Ben the other day because <laughs> sometimes my humor gets a bit harsh. Poor Ben. Poor intern Ben. <laughs> He's quite forgiving. Bless him. But I had to apologize. You know, the forgiving, you know what he had to do? He had to absorb the fact that I already hurt him. Do you know what God has to do to forgive us? He has to absorb all our sinfulness. He says, I will absorb that sinfulness. I have already absorbed that sinfulness, at least potentially have, on the cross at Calvary, the death of my son. And if you'll come to me through faith in that, I'll forgive. I want you to think about this for a second. Because this is, this is what he's saying. The author of Hebrews is saying, the writer is saying, guys, don't you get it? Why would you want to go back to a place where you're full of terror when you can come to God through Jesus, who's that meteor, and, and you can belong, listen, to a group of justified people. Listen, this is what's great when God's people actually act like God's people. When we accept each other on the basis of how we've been accepted. It's a glorious thing to be a part of. It's what our eternity is going to be about permanently. If when I accept you based on how you treat me, sometimes it's great, sometimes it's not so great. But when I accept you or receive you based on how God has treated me and based on how God has declared you, forgiven and innocent, forgiven and innocent, then we look at each other as forgiven and innocent and we are in a better place together. We're restored. We've come to this. We belong to this company of people justified by God. And he says, look at verse 24, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks of better things than that of Abel. Jesus spoke of the blood of Abel. Abel was, if you remember the story, way back in Genesis 4, Abel was Cain's brother. Abel was, was a worshiper of God. And Cain and Abel each brought sacrifices to God. Abel brought his by faith. Cain brought his thinking he was earning something from God. God accepts Abel's sacrifice, rejects Cain's sacrifice. Cain gets mad. What does Cain do? Cain kills Abel. Ah! Think you're better than me? And Jesus says that the blood of all the martyrs from Abel all the way through to, and he names a priest who had died not too long before not too many generations before his time. They all cry out from the grave. And what do they cry out? Vengeance. Justice. God, when are you going to bring justice? I was slain unjustly. Now, so when the author says that the blood of sprinkling from Jesus the mediator speaks of better things than that of Abel, what does it speak of? What did Jesus speak of when his blood was being spilt on the cross, was the first thing he says from the cross. You guys remember? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Abel's blood spoke vengeance. Jesus' blood speaks forgiveness. Think about this. 
When God comes to this earth, people say this, why will, if God's real, why doesn't he just show up? He did. That's what makes Christianity different than all the religions and philosophies of the world. All other religions of the world, somebody says, I had a private experience with God. Trust me, here's what he's like. Christianity says, God says, here I am in the form of man. I'll do all the things that you would expect God to do, and you can kill me to prove it, because on the third day I rise from the dead. And that's exactly what he did. And we see that and we think, wow. And what does God say as he's being rejected and crucified by mankind? Father, forgive them. Now, that's the blessing of relating to God through Jesus. Now, in verse 25, we're almost done. The author says, see that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more we shall not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven. So God's, uh, Jesus' death and resurrection still speaks. speaks forgiveness, it offers reconciliation, and a way for us to be right with God. And the, and the writer of Hebrews is saying, listen, you need to be serious about this. There are terrible consequences for refusing God's grace. You see, the thing is, if you can deny that God exists your whole life, it doesn't change that he, it doesn't make him non-existent. And I'm not saying that to be, um, I'm not saying that to be anti-intellectual. I'm not saying that, uh, that there are, people have, have thought through and have philosophical reasons to be agnostic. I, I understand that. But here, facts are facts, if God be fact, if God is reality, and we assume he is because he showed up in Palestine 2,000 years ago. If God be reality, you can say, no, he's not real, he's not real, he's not real. It doesn't mean he's not real. And if he's that real and he's as good as he is, our only hope is that he is as good as Jesus showed himself to be. And if we say, nah, that's fine. If God's real, I'll take my chances and I'll see him when I see him. I told the story before, but it's a good story to repeat. When I was in Bible college, there was a place called Happy Face Malt Shop that we used to go and get ice cream shakes. Amazing peanut butter chocolate ice cream shakes. Happy Face Malt Shop. And you would think you'd go in there and the owner would be this happy guy. He was the most grumpy old guy I've ever seen. And I remember we went in there and we'd all, we, everyone would try to kind of share Jesus with him as much as we could without being obnoxious or rude and and one of my friends was trying to talk to him one day and he wasn't having it and so I was just kind of listening and my friend goes, man, do you, do you not worry? What if you're wrong and you face God? He goes, you know what? There might be a God. And if there's a, good, if there's a God in heaven, I think I'll be in heaven. And you know what I'm gonna do when I see him face to face? And we said, no, what? He goes, I'm gonna slap him as hard as I can for screwing up this world. Really? Is there any reasonableness to that whatsoever? There's a God? Let's, let's think this through, guys. If there's a God, an all-powerful being, your only hope is that he is good and merciful. You ain't gonna be slapping anybody if you see him face to face. And I just remember thinking, wow, what, what is it about us? And I mean us, I don't mean him, I mean us. What is it about us as human beings that thinks that we can be that arrogant? No, listen, the author's being really clear 
There's serious consequences. I want you to listen to what Jesus says. You don't just think this is John kind of preaching hard stuff. This is, these are the words of Jesus. He says, again, I'm quoting from the NLT. He says, if you try to hang on to your own life, you'll lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake and the sake of the good news, you will save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world and lose your own soul? If any, is anything worth more than your soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my message in these adulterous and sinful days, the Son of Man will be ashamed of that person when he returns in the glory of his Father and his holy angels. That's what Jesus says. Because it's, it's a seriously thing, it's a serious thing to re- refuse God's grace that he shows us in Jesus. He goes on to, to quote Haggai chapter 2, verse 6, in verse 26, talking about, you know, once more and I will shake the, thing, the, shake the earth, not just the earth, but the heavens. And, and, the, and the writer, I'm going to kind of sum this up quickly because we're running out of time, but the writer kind of basically makes a simple point. He's saying, listen, this quote is there to show us that God is shaking things up, but he's not shaking things up so nothing else exists. He's shaking up the temporary so the eternal stays forever. He's trying to shake our hands loose of things that are less than he is. Again, this is not God trying to reject us, but God protecting us. He shakes things loose from our hands because he says, look, it's a counterfeit. It's not what you're created to have. You're created to have a relationship with me. I'm shaking up this earth so that what cannot be shaken lasts forever. Therefore, he says, verse 28, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace. Grace, God's unmerited favor, God's supernatural enabling. Let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. You know the word reverence means? It literally means with your eyes turned down. It's the direct opposite of that guy at Happy Face Malt Shop who shook his fist at God. Who do you think you are? It's like, Lord, you are who you are. You know what's amazing about our God? That when we come to him that way and we say, Lord, I have no right to approach you. I have no right to be called your child to be adopted into your family. You know what the Lord does? <laughs> he kills the fatted calf. He robes us in his righteousness. He puts a ring of identity on our finger and he says to everyone around them, let's celebrate my sons come home. That's what he says. Now, I do say this to scare us all. If we reject this goodness, what else do we have? Where else can we go? Folks, the writer of Hebrews has great compassion for his brothers and sisters who are suffering. Specifically because they're suffering for their faith in Jesus. But he's saying, listen, don't chuck away that faith. Don't refuse the grace of God that enables you to know him and to serve him as he's worthy. Don't give up on that. 